This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show. Hi, I'm Greg Watson and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters where we talk all things property, we squeeze as much as we can into this format here on NPR. We're going to look at a bit of news about the developments that are happening in the Manawatu area. We'll recap a little bit on what we talked about last week about rents and house prices. And also we'll talk just a couple of assorted news articles about the properties that have been selling for phenomenal prices and the money that people are making out of property sales. Not necessarily super palatable, that last bit, but still, it's in the news and I'd like to bring new articles that might be of interest. This one caught me slightly off guard. I normally have my fingers on the pulse, but uh, not this time. I found on Stuff Property section an article by Paul Mitchell. The headline is, Housing development could double the size of a rural Manawatu village. So a potential housing development could be could double the size of Rongatia and add up to 200 new homes. This is actually really good news, uh, provided that this does go ahead. Why is it good news? Well, it's a 30-hectare block of land beside the village of Rongatia, and it's for sale by Baileys and tenders close on August the 12th. Bailey's salesman Carl Cameron said the area was being promoted for residential development by the Manawatu District Council to alleviate a shortage of lifestyle and residential sections in the district. And this is why it's good news. It's in close proximity to Palmerston North, Fielding and Ohakia Air Base. A residential development on the land, which borders the southern end of Rongatia, would likely be in high demand, he said. The L-shaped block of land wrapped around a pre-sold subdivision and had multiple entrance points on Banks Road, Trent Street and Sterling Lane. So I beg your pardon, Sterling Lane. Existing zoning allowed for subdivision into large lifestyle lots of over, over 4,000 square metres, but Cameron said the council was working on a draft district plan change that would rezone the rural land into a settlement zone. He says this would open the way for more intensive subdivision and development of around 200 lots of approximately 1,000 square metres, what we pretty much would refer to as a quarter acre. And that would significantly boost the residential options for a developer. So in the 2018 census, Rongatia had a population of 642, which is about 238 households, based on the average New Zealand household size of 2.7 people per home. So the council spokesman Ben Caldwell said the zoning change was part of an ongoing review of the rural village and fielding residential section of the Manawatu district plan. So we have to see where that goes. It'll be interesting to see if it keeps that uh, village feel or if it becomes more like uh, a suburb of uh, Palmerston North, so to speak. Had uh, friends who grew up in Rongatia, lovely place, uh, very nice and quiet, 
And so it'll be interesting to see if there is any opposition uh, towards that. Speaking of opposition, and this one slightly further afield, this article from Stuff on the Lifestyle section around Queenstown. It says a $120 million legal fight is underway over leaky luxury apartments. So this is a, uh, a one of a number, well many, <laughs> uh, cases uh, of leaky homes around the country. So the body corporate for owners of the Oakshaws Apartments has launched legal action against the Queenstown Lakes District Council in 2005 over water and structural issues at the waterfront site. The estimated repair costs for extensive building faults, including to balconies, roofs, cladding and bathrooms, have since ballooned out to $120 million. Isn't that incredible? The owners are also seeking costs for lost rental returns and moving storage and cleaning costs, which would bring the total bill to $140 million. Body Corporate Chairman Graham Kruger said the situation had been horrific for the 74-odd owners. All we want is a building to be fixed as it was meant to be in the first place, he says. It's broken owners' hearts. So this is typical of many cases that are happening around the country. Kruger said a high court hearing date set for February 2023, but he hoped the case would be resolved earlier for mediation, which also shows that this legal action started in 2015 and February 2023, I mean, that's an eight-year wait. Really sad, really sad for people that own those properties. So those particular properties are owned by a mixture of New Zealanders and people from overseas, and many had been forced into mortgagee sales. Uh, that's the sad thing about it. So we'll watch that space, but it's only one of a number of uh, leaky home claims in and around Queenstown. Now what can you do for a cheap fix if you want some privacy from your neighbours? Well, a Kiwi woman's frosted window hack has had 1.7 million hits on TikTok. Now I must admit I'm not a TikTok uh, user, But uh, I'll read you a little bit of this article because it's quite interesting. She found a novel way to create privacy with regards to the windows. And so obviously resonated with a lot of people uh, to share it and, and, uh, and like it. So this is what the article says. It says, None of us like having neighbours staring straight into our homes, but sometimes we don't want to close the blind or curtains and block out the sun and light just to get that privacy. Tyler a New Zealander with a knack for DIY discovered the perfect hack to solve the problem. She created a short video, popped it up on TikTok, and the number of people who have viewed it is currently around 1.7 million. She says, Our kitchen is really sunny, but the neighbours can see straight in. Instead of getting a vinyl sticker, I got some frosting spray from Bunnings for $21.50. So after a good clean, I put up some tape for nice crisp lines and double-checked they were straight. When you first spray it, it doesn't look that good, but it looks better as it dries. It took three coats and just kept getting better. The real reward was peeling the tape off, she says in the in the article. And it, she thinks it turned out really well and we didn't lose any sun. So Tyler, who calls herself a 20-something Kiwi, who loves her fiancé nature and wheels under her feet, has had more than 123,000 likes for her post and 1,200-plus comments. So it's quite... Uh, Really, really quite interesting how sometimes these things can take off. Keith Robeson, the National Buyer of Paint at Bunnings, says it's great to see customers coming up with creative and low-cost DIY solutions to everyday problems. He says the product used is called Rust-Oleum Frosted Glass Spray. That's Rust-Oleum 
frosted glass spray, and it has been in demand recently. Rust-Oleum make a variety of spray paints with unique finishes and effects that are popular amongst savvy DIYers, he said. So unfortunately, I've already created privacy at my property, and I did it a slightly more expensive way, and so you can see why people look for uh, low-cost alternatives. What I did was I put mirrored tinting on windows of properties that look uh, where you feel like you might be in a fishbowl or that people can see in and that sort of thing. And that's worked really well um, for privacy and and for tenants to know that that people aren't looking in. Now that's somewhat more expensive, probably 10 to 20 times more expensive uh, if you have somebody do it professionally. I wasn't going to do it myself. And so you can see why a fix like that would go viral uh, and um, a $20 fix and do it yourself. I'm so curious to try it out, but my handy uh, man skills might not be as good as Tyler's. So, uh, you know, it's a curiosity. gets a lot of people going. Right, so let's have a look at the market now and uh, this article by Miriam Bell. This is the uh, sales market. The article says, here's where house prices aren't cooling. So just to put this in context, the... Quotable value has come out and said the latest figures show a 2.2% reduction in average value growth across the most expensive houses nationwide over the last three months. So what we're talking about is a decrease in the rate of increase, if that makes sense. So the rate of the price increase dropped from 8.5% in the previous three months to 6.3% in that time. The country's least expensive houses had a a 1.4% drop in average value growth from 8.3 to 6.9. Now remember, these figures are over a quarter. It's not even over a year. So of the main centres, only one had an outright decline, which was Marlborough. Uh, And and that's where part of their market is is, uh, going well. Now, Quotable Value General Manager David Nagel said the drop was statistically significant given 12 months of solid growth across all 16 urban centres monitored. While none of the other centres had price falls for recorded growth of less than 3%. So effectively what they're saying, that no one's saying that the market's dropping, they're just saying it's not rising as quickly. So we'll have to see how things go here. I'm just referring back to the article. It doesn't refer to Palmerston North specifically, uh, which is unfortunate, but um, it shows quite clearly that some areas had, or five of the markets had quarterly growth of more than 10%. That's in three months, 10%. There was Upper Hutt, Whangarei and Papakura in the lower quartile and Franklin Wing and Wellington City in the upper quartile. So the headlines can sometimes give the impression uh, that things are changing significantly when maybe they... Uh, possibly aren't. But here is something that is changing fairly significantly, and that's rental amounts. We talked a bit about this in last week's show, but this article by Catherine Harris in Stuff Business says rents hit new high despite being in the midst of winter. So rents have reached another all-time high across the country according to Trade Me Properties Rental Index. After remaining stagnant for three months, the national median weekly rent climbed to a record-breaking $545 in June, up 7% on a year earlier. Rents rose year-on-year in most regions, with records broken in Taranaki, up 9.3%, Manawatu Wanganui, up nearly 16%, and Gisborne as well. So 
16% changes here in Manawatu Wanganui mean that if you are a landlord, uh, there is the rents have been rising to that level and the market has been rising based on supply and demand. That means doing a rise next time a rental change comes available, bearing in mind we're only able to do them uh, every 12 months now, is justified based on the supply and the demand in the market. Many landlords decide, of course, not to make changes necessarily at market level, but certainly things are going up considerably. And that's really hard for tenants, as the affordability of rent um, plays a part in what they can get and the quality of what they can get. And that's something that we talked about in last week's show. So these rises come down to a national lack of market supply, with the number of rental properties listed on TradeMe down by 7% in June compared with the same month last year, and that's according to Gavin Lloyd, the TradeMe Property Sales Director. There's only two areas where rents did not increase uh, on this time last year, and that was Marlborough and Otago, which were both flat. Rents have been under special scrutiny to see if landlords would react in increasing rents as legislation was passed in March. And so they go and give some examples of landlords potentially putting rents up relating to extra costs. And that's something which is simply, as landlords are running a business, tends to happen. They'll absorb a certain amount, but uh, as more costs are put on them, of course, as with any business, there often is an increase in the sale price of the product or commodity. Really, uh, rents are subject to a number of these other changes with regards uh, costs and so forth. So we're going to have a little break now before we go to talk after the break about a house that's located in two different Auckland suburbs. But first of all, we're going to have a song by Philip Phillips, Home. Hold on to me as we go As we roll down this unfamiliar road And although this wave is stringing us along Just know you're not alone I'm gonna make this place your home Settle down, it'll all be clear Don't pay no mind to the demons, they fill you with fear The trouble in my drag you No, you're not alone 
you're listening to Manotu People's Radio. This is Property Matters. Te reo irarangi o na tangata o Manawatu. I'm Greg Watson. Lovely to have your company. I just missed the microphone there. I was so busy reading this uh, news article that I was going to bring to you that I jumped in and started talking without having the microphone on. But we're there now, so that's all good. And I mentioned before the break, we're going to talk about the house that's in two different Auckland suburbs. Now, have you ever had the situation where you've lived in a suburb that's maybe less desirable uh, for, and then you're very close to the next suburb and, and what we find is that uh, you might say, oh no, I'm in uh, such and such suburb because it sounds a bit better. Well, this person's got the option because there's a corner section in Ponsonby and Greylin and it has two adjoining one-bedroom homes owned by the same owner on a combined 750 square metre section and it literally straddles two suburbs. So number one, Mulcow Street, with a house size of 66 square metres on a 379 square metre section is zoned as Greylin. Number three, Mulcow Street, 65 square metres, 371 section is officially designated Ponsonby. So the question is, would you rather live in Ponsonby or Greylin? I don't know the answer to that, but would it have implications for uh, school zoning? Probably not a matter in, to worry about in this case because the internal layout of the two 1940s units varies slightly, but they both have all-in-one bathrooms, one double bedroom, and a room that could be an office or media room. So really quite interesting that they're putting these two properties up for sale. The south part of Greylin, more towards Western Springside, has more of a reputation of a less desirable price point, according to listing agent Jack Cougar from Bailey's and Ponsonby. But he says, with this one more on the cusp, it's in a good spot we get the best of both worlds. They're only a few hundred metres from St Paul's College, a delicatessen and local shops, and you have the ease of walking to Ponsonby or Greylin. So number three is a bit renovated. Number one is the original. Now, he didn't want to say what the price expectations would be, but the rating values are $1.06 million for number one and $1.08 million for number three. Incredible for basically which is a one-plus bedroom home. So that's going to tender on August the 10th. It will be interesting uh, how that goes. Having the ability to buy two properties next door to each other could suit some people uh, potentially as well, as the current owners were a brother and sister who lived in the properties at, at one stage. So just talking about um, housing affordability, talking about this $1.06 million for a, a one-plus bedroom house, according to ANZ, they're saying that housing affordability could actually take decades to improve. There really is an, a growing divide between the housing haves and have-nots and without outright price falls it would be difficult to rectify, ANZ economists say. The bank's latest property report showed house prices were running at more than 10.5 times disposable incomes in June and that's up from 8.3 uh, a year before, sorry two years before I should say pre-COVID. In inverted commas, they say simply bonkers numbers were to blame for this, with the annual house price inflation running at around 30% and the average median house, household disposable income at 72000 uh, or close to 73000 in June, The Economist said. Four months after the government announced its suite of new housing policies, the housing market remained robust and prices lifted by 1.6% in June. That's in one month. So this means that that gap is widening. So let's look at uh, how this looks in real terms. 
So there's a gap forming between those who can buy a house and those who are still trying to save a deposit. So the given example was that someone who bought a $1 million house a year ago with 20% deposit and an 800000 loan fixed at 3% would have made an unrealised gain minus interest of more than $275,000. But someone who did not have the 20% deposit a year ago who had to, would have to save another $60,000 just to buy that same house. That means that they're going to be having to save well over $1,000 a week just to keep up. In fact, according to this article, it says it meant an extra $165 in savings per day would be required just to stand still versus the unrealised daily gain if people own a property of 750 per day. Real difference in uh, wealth creation. It's, um, so the, the economists say the scary thing was that with the optimistic assumption that house price inflation for the foreseeable future was zero, and while the income growth was 5% per year, it would take six years for the house price to income ratio to return back to those pre-COVID levels. But other scenarios were more sobering and showed that it would take decades for affordability to improve. For example, if house price inflation of 2% and income growth was at 4%, it would take 15 years just to recover from the rises we've had since those pre-COVID levels. So they talked a little bit about the strategy and in a quote here uh, talks about while the take-your-medicine approach has some appeal as the quickest solution, in other words, uh, buying, it would cause a lot of collateral damage for likes of economy-wide employment. It wouldn't just be a recent home buyer's problem. So it was not feasible for growth in house prices to significantly outpace income growth for much longer as increasing mortgage rates should cool the market but they expected progress towards housing affordability excuse me, would be very slow going. The government could speed this up with more aggressive supply-side policies such as freeing up land, cutting red tape, funding greenfield infrastructure and importing the right skills. There is scope to call the housing market without spooking the horses too much, but we don't need this housing party to carry on. It's doing a lot more harm than good at this point. Just a uh, view there from the article. Finally, another article says that the perfect perfect storm, in inverted commas, means that rental affordability is declining nationwide. The rental affordability is declining around the country as well, with even cheaper regions becoming less affordable, new Massey University research reveals. So not only is house prices less affordable, so is the rents. So a quarterly deterioration of 11.2% in rental affordability at a national level, according to the latest report. It showed that six of the 16 regions had a decline in rental affordability over the March quarter of this year. So it's getting harder to afford rents. Um, so regions now rated as less affordable than the uh, national average are Marlborough Bay of Plenty, Auckland, Hawke's Bay, Tasman and Northland. The remaining 10 regions were relatively more rent affordable than national average, particularly Southland and the West Coast. Then they looked at the rents and the increases there, and as I mentioned earlier, the largest annual rent increases were Hawke's Bay at 10.5%, Manawatu, Wanganui, 15.5%, Southland, almost 16 and Marlborough up around 11%. So even Auckland had an increase of 5% in rents. So it's just showing that it's really hard to be able to keep up with the rents as well as wages are not uh, going quite as well as as had hoped. Another thing that's happening is from this article by Miriam Bell saying, was that it? 
Data indicates property investor pullback may be over. So the member in March, the government made changes to residential property investments that were meant to curb investor activity. Investors were outraged by the tax changes and many threatened to crit the market. But to date, there's been not an exodus of investors. And now economist Tony Alexander's latest survey of mortgage advisors suggested a peak withdrawal of buyers has been and gone. A net 19% of mortgage advisors surveyed said they were seeing fewer investors coming to look for advice. While this was a negative result which reflected greater overall caution about real estate, Alexander said it was the last least weak outcome recorded for investors in five months. In June, 53% of mortgage brokers reported a decrease in investors wanting advice. In May, 60% did. In April, 78% did. So this result shows that the investors' pullback has eased so while they're backing away from buying property, the rate at which they're doing so had slowed. So it tells us that the shock effects of the loan-to-value ratio rules returning in February and the March tax changes are passing. Uh, it seemed that the outraged spitting of the dummy effect happened back over the April-May period, according to Tony Alexander. So there are still, while there's evidence that the investors are backing away from buying, there is no evidence they're selling existing properties or getting out of the market en masse. Why? Probably because property is still a very good investment in general and they keep going up You know, with regards the value. In June there was a uh, total of $8.5 billion in new mortgage lending. First home buyers were 1.64 and investors 1.43. So uh, that, that is still right up there in terms of uh, the amounts being lent. It has come down slightly though probably due to the number of properties available. I was going to read an article about the uh, largest capital gains that have been made this year, but uh, we're running a little bit low on time, so instead I'll just let you know that the CoreLogic's most recent pain and gain report put the median national gain made by people selling an existing house between January and March at $315,000, up from $291,000 at the end of last year. So those are the highest profits for house sellers on record. So it's a surprise to none of us that uh, these things are happening. Probably the most extreme example was a Christchurch property bought for $980,000 and sold seven years later for $4.15 million, generated the biggest capital gain for any seller this year, and that's just over three or close to $3.5 million just for seven years of holding on to a property. Uh, they give various examples that are well into the millions uh, through this article. But like I say, we're a little bit low on time. But again, it is that situation of people making uh, quite large profits on property. And with the Brightline test, uh, that's going to at least create in future the ability to gain tax on those for the government coffers. So that's all we've got time for today. This has been Property Matters. I'm Greg Watson. It's lovely having your company. You can find this where all good podcasts are found. And otherwise, you can find me just on the internet. Just Google Greg Watson and Property Matters. Thanks for being here, and we'll catch up with you next week on NPR.net. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.